welcome church family once again. It is so good to see you who are able to be with us in this room and to uh, invite you again, whatever room you are in, as uh, part of one church, one family, uh, part of what God is doing in our communities. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians. Maybe you have a Bible app or uh, you have a, a hard copy there in front of you. Turn with me to Colossians 4, looking today at verses 7 through 11. We've been having the banners up here for some months as we've been studying Colossians, and it says, submitting to the supremacy of Christ. That's what the book of Colossians really is emphasizing is the supremacy of Christ and how important it is that we put ourselves under him. He is the one we found in chapter one who has created all things. He sustains all things. He controls all things. He forgave all sins to the cross. He nailed our sins to the cross. And he is above all things, and he is to be exalted above all things by us. We are to exalt him intentionally. He is above all and in you all, Colossians 3. It's a great concept, and we may be thinking, you may be thinking, well, what does that have to do with me? How does it change me? How does it transform me? So what? We have really come to the end already of the teaching portion of Colossians, and what remains is some 12 verses that contain some 10 names of people who were part of Paul's ministry team or part of his circle of encouragement while he was in prison in Rome. And so we're going to look at these names because I think these people really answer the question, so what? Because these are people who had submitted themselves to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we have a lot to learn uh, from them. A key word, I think, today would be the word faithfulness. Faithfulness. And in fact, I'd say the key concept we would have to look at today, if you could just advance to the next slide there. Here we go. The main idea would be you will be used by God if you respond to the supremacy of Christ. It's an incredible privilege to think that the God who created everything, who is supreme over all things, all the chaos of the world, everything going on in your life or the whole world, that somehow he would pinpoint you and say, I want to use you in some profound way, but he does. He wants to use you, and if you submit to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, you will be used. So, let's think through some of these men. The first one of these, we're going to go through five of them, of the ten, five of the ten today, and one or more of them might be your story. Verse 7 and 8, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he, Tychicus, may encourage your hearts. He is coming with, here's the second name, Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. We start with Tychicus. He might not be familiar to you. You know Peter, James, John, the inner circle of Jesus. You know the Apostle Paul who wrote Colossians. 
But look at the description of Tychicus, dear brother, faithful minister, fellow servant, or bond servant, and he'll encourage you. We actually know a number of things about him just from this and from other passages. But how many people would you trust to tell others how you are doing? That's what it says. He'll tell you how we're doing. How many people could really accurately reflect to someone else, this is how how they're doing? Would you trust them to say that? How many people would you describe as a dear brother or dear sister? You have perhaps many brothers and sisters in Christ here. But then there's those who are your beloved. It's a, it's a form of the word love, the dear or beloved brother or sister. And here's the term faithful servant. Faithful, it's a form actually of the word faith, like you put your faith in Christ. But that's to be a, a character trait of us that we are faithful. Full, trusted. It means reliable. It means accountable. It means responsible. And a faithful servant, Tychicus was the kind of guy that if you needed something to be done, you know it would be done and it'd be taken care of. Faithful servant. And then you have another term for servant, and it's almost difficult to translate both of them in the same verse, but it's a completely different word because it's the word slave, a fellow slave. In the Lord. So, so Paul thinks of Tychicus and says, he's a slave of Christ, just like me. We are radically committed to serving Christ who is supreme over all things. And so, so this is this kind of a person. So, so why is Tychicus first in this list of some 10 names? It's because he's carrying the letter of Colossians to Colossae. And in fact, we know he is also carrying the letter Ephesians because Ephesians 6.21 is the identical verse, almost word for word to this verse, 21 and 22. And with these two letters, Colossians and Ephesians, he's also carrying Philemon because Philemon was part of the Colossian church. You see, so Paul is in prison in Rome and he is some 1,200 miles away from Ephesus and Colossae, and so he has to send someone to bring these letters to these churches, and he chose Tychicus. He is my man, 1,300 long miles away. He will report about me. He will deliver these letters. How did Tychicus join the team? Uh, We will find out that he is from, we're going to zoom into this area where much of the missionary journeys of Paul take place. And in Acts 20, verse 4, we find that Tychicus is one of those who accompanied Paul from Asia, probably specifically Ephesus, where Paul had a couple of years of ministry. And then he went with Paul. Paul was always part of a team. He went with Paul, visiting places like Thessalonica and and Philippi, and then to Corinth, and on this third journey, picking up the money from the offering that you read about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in Corinth, and taking that offering and accompanying it, I believe, all the way to Jerusalem. I think Tychicus was part of this team, because when Paul got to Jerusalem, he said as in defense, as he's defending himself to his fellow Jews who hated him for preaching Christ, he says, I came to Jerusalem actually to bring my people, your people, the Jews, gifts for the poor. Now, Paul then is carrying a lot of money, 
And it wasn't a cashier's check. It was going to be uh, bags of silver and gold coins, most likely. And so he can't carry it all by himself. And so he has these men with him. And among those men, they must be trusted financially. And so we read this in 2 Corinthians. We know that Titus was one of those that was carrying the gift. And I think one of the other trusted men was Tychicus. We are sending along with him, Titus has already been mentioned in the passage, the brother who is not named, this is my conjecture, who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. He was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering. Here's why. Taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In other words, accountability. We want want to be totally above board. And along with, I'll follow some scholars who, who feel there's good reason to believe this was Tychicus. So you've got a man here who is trusted to be on Paul's ministry team. He is trusted with uh, carrying letters and reporting for Paul how he's doing. He is trusted with carrying money. And in fact, it's about seven years later, uh, well, actually on two different occasions, a couple years apart, when Paul even trusted him with leading whole churches. He, um, in a couple of times, he wanted uh, first Titus and then Timothy to come and uh, be with him. Paul wanted Titus and Timothy to join him. Guess who he sent in his place? As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, meaning Titus, who is in Crete, do your best to come to me, Paul, at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. I trust him with leading this church in the interim basis. And, and then Timothy, at the end, towards the end of Paul's life, when he's in prison the second time, do your best to come to me quickly, referring to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, because I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. If, there is a, if there's a phrase that captures Tychicus, it is the word Faithful. So many of you here in the room and uh, watching or listening right now have been faithful for many years, serving in this church, serving the purposes of Christ, serving in your community. Tychicus reminds me of, of you. One of the, one of the uh, frustrations of this season has been that in these couple of months, we have had to pare ministry way, way down right, to just the essential service broadcast that all we could do. As much as I regretted that, I was a wee bit happy for some of you who serve so faithfully, so consistently that you got a break, okay? Everything kind of went on pause for a little while. On the other hand, there were some of those, some of you during this season, a dozen, 15, 20 or so, who actually had to kick it into higher gear than ever to continue to produce the broadcast. I am very grateful for your faithfulness as well. You are, you are men and women after Tychicus's heart. And then Tychicus also reminds me of those here at Open Door who are part of the faithful stewardship of God's money. First of all, our, our church board, uh, they are trustworthy men who, who carefully watch the budget. They don't, it's not their money. It's not your money. It's God's money. And they are uh, carefully 
being stewards of that. Then there is our treasurer and office administrator who, who know a lot more details than me, know the details of the giving, etc. They are trustworthy people because the issue is, as we read in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, to do what is right not only in the eyes of the Lord, most important, but also reputation, accountability in the eyes of man. He was trusted, Tychicus like so many here. He was also trusted to lead the church in, uh, in, in the stead of Titus and, 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 and Timothy. When, when I'm away on a trip or a vacation or whatever, you know how much I worry about the pastoral staff taking care of things? Not at all. <laughs> I sleep really good on vacation with, with men like Nate and Seth handling whatever comes into the office in terms of needs or issues. Tychicus, faithful. And then notice this at the end of verse 8. So that he, knowing our circumstances, he will encourage, <clears throat> he will encourage your hearts. He's an encourager. Do you see the connection between he knows our circumstances and he'll encourage you? What were Paul's circumstances? He is stuck in prison. Unjustly, his freedom was taken away. He was stuck in prison for some two years, awaiting a trial that actually never happened. His ministry shut down. And he says, I'm sending Tychicus because he'll encourage you about our circumstances. Is that even almost irrational? Not when you consider that Paul and Tychicus are living under the supremacy of Christ. Because if we, you recall from last week, we looked in Philippians 1, where it says that Paul says, because of my circumstances, I am able to proclaim the gospel and inspire others to proclaim the gospel even more boldly than ever. Do you see the, 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 the spiritual worldview adjustment that Paul and Tychicus have made? Is that these circumstances are not the problem. They are the opportunity to do what? display the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that's why he would encourage their hearts. So the question is, in this, for us specifically, in this crazy, unwelcome season of circumstances and adjustments, what, what is our focus? Are we actually turning inward? More focused on our frustration, more focused on our fears, there's been health issues or concerns, money issues or concerns, or jobs. And, and our tendency in times of difficulty is to turn inward. How will this affect me? Inward instead of what? Upward. What Paul and Tychicus did is they turned their attention upward. And we're asking questions like, how should I trust God in this? How can I display his character to others in this? How can I proclaim him to others? For what should I thank him in these circumstances? And that altered worldview upward is what created encouragement. Throughout this season, we've talked often about we need to trust God. I think there's a more important question. Can God trust us to stay on task making disciples of Jesus Christ when everything else is going crazy? 
Because that is submitting to the supremacy of Christ is when we submit to the purposes of Christ. Can he trust us in COVID season to stay on task? Can he trust us in a time of racial justice concerns or protests or 2020 election season? Can he trust us to stay on task pointing out his supremacy instead of everything else? Because if your encouragement is going to come from the news cycle, you're in for a crazy roller coaster ride. And you will find your relationships will be tense because people disagree. But if you focus on the supremacy of Christ, you will actually be encouraged with everything that's going on. Because you will see opportunity to exalt the supremacy of Christ. Tychicus will encourage you. And who else is coming? Verse 9. Onesimus. You might actually identify more with him. Whereas we, I'm, I'm dubbing Tychicus as the trusted encourager, I'm calling Onesimus the growing new believer. Onesimus. He, Tychicus, is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. Now, I'm going to defer a little bit of Onesimus till we uh, follow up Colossians for just briefly with the story of, uh, with the, with the uh, study of the book of Philemon. Because you see, the, the little one-chapter book of Philemon is the story really of Onesimus and Philemon. <clears throat> it's important that Onesimus comes with a trusted associate of Paul's because Onesimus, some of you know this story, Onesimus is actually a slave who has run away from, guess who, Philemon, who is a believer in, uh, in, in, the, in the church in Colossae, hosting the church, it seems, in Colossae. And so Onesimus is coming back home to his master from whom he ran away. <clears throat> Somehow in God's providence, when Onesimus ran away, he, he fled some 1,200, 1,300 miles to Rome. And in God's providence, somehow came in contact with Paul, who was imprisoned, who was able to share the gospel with him and disciple him. And so now Onesimus is a growing young Christian. And in this process, we'll see that Paul does not... Uh, does not condone or, or, or address insta the institution of slavery, but he tells Onesimus in his spiritual journey, you need to go back to Philemon because you are both brothers now in Jesus Christ. I'm getting into the message of, of the book of Philemon. It's phenomenal. And let's see what God does to blend two radically different per people in the body of Christ. I think God is actually doing that in his family a lot these days. He is one of you, so don't, don't see Onesimus as something different. He's, he's one of you. He's part of the church, and I love the pronoun, if you can love pronouns, they. Do you see the word they in verse 9? Who's they? They is Tychicus and Onesimus. They together will tell you everything that's happened in me. In other words, Paul does not see Onesimus as, as lesser, but rather as a partner with Tychicus. He's part of the team. It's not his position in society that matters. What matters is he is a co-worker in the ministry, even though he's a new believer. Some of you are newer to your faith in Christ. Some of you are newer to the church. Um, part of your growth will be that you come to realize that, that a church family is not just about learning and growing yourself. It's not just about... Um, Finding good friends, though I hope all these things are true, 
But what you will find is that God puts you in a family because you are needed there, and he wants you to serve in that church family. And so it might be relatively new for you to feel responsible for someone else's spiritual growth. But that's what maturity is. And the first place you might feel the weight of that is in your own family, especially if you have children at home, to realize, wait a minute, if I know Christ and I'm learning about Christ, I need to communicate that to my children. I need to model that for my children. Then you begin to think about your friendships and realize God's given you unique friendships in the community that nobody else has. And, And so you begin to take responsibility and realize, I am modeling Christ for everyone that knows me. And friendship takes on a different Uh, more valuable purpose. It's not just about, I need good friends, but my friends need me because they need Christ. So what is it that transformed Onesimus from a bitter, fleeing, and frightened slave? What transformed him was the supremacy of Christ. I will go because Christ has forgiven me. Christ gives me courage. I can face a difficult relationship. I can go back uh, and apologize if necessary because Christ is supreme. And when Christ is supreme, we see everything and everyone differently. Tychicus, faithful. Onesimus is growing. Two men are taking the letters to Colossae. There's three more names we're going to look at today in verses 10 and 11. Uh, Let's read those. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. Mark, if he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is also called Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. So while Tychicus and Onesimus are leaving Paul, these three that he mentions first are Jewish uh, friends that are gathered around Paul in prison. Evidently, these three are the only three that are Jewish, and and Paul, for some reason, makes an intentional effort to say that, uh, you know, whether you're of of the Gentile races or or the Jewish race, they're they're all part of the team uh, together. And so these three men are encouragements or comfort to me. First one, Aristarchus, I call him the compassionate friend. His name actually appears five times in the New Testament. Actually, the most we know about him, though, is, in one sense, character-wise, is here, where he's called a fellow prisoner. So we'll just uh, jump through these mentions of our Aristarchus. Chapter 19, uh, the whole city referring to Ephesus was in an uproar. He's one of the partners with Paul <clears throat> on the team. And the people seized, it got so bad, there's a riot in Ephesus, it got so bad the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. So Aristarchus is a man who understands uh, the risks of identifying with Paul, who is under attack because he identifies with Jesus Christ. And he realizes that the persecution is, is normal. He was part of this team, just like Tychicus, this is the same verse we looked at that mentioned him earlier, part of this team, at least joining on the third missionary journey with Paul. And we know that after the third journey is when Paul then was arrested and taken eventually to Rome, and we know that Aristarchus was with him. We boarded a ship from Adramidium about to sail, Aristarchus, a Macedonian 
from Thessalonica, so we know actually kind of his hometown, home church, he was with us. So he is following Paul while Paul is a prisoner being taken to Rome to face Caesar. And he's mentioned again in Philemon. So why is he called in our passage a fellow prisoner? Is he literally arrested and in chains like Paul? I don't think so. It could be. Some think he is. I, I, I tend to think that Paul is using this as saying he is so aligned and so, so committed to me in my imprisonment because he has accompanied me from Jerusalem and through the months and various stops in different types of incarceration before he ever got to have a shipwreck on the way to Rome. It's been, a, it's been an amazing journey. Read the last four, five, six chapters of, of the book of Acts, and you see what's all involved. And Aristarchus was right there alongside of him. And now that he's been in prison in Rome, Aristarchus is still that close friend. I think it's simply a trait of Aristarchus that he is this compassionate man. He suffers with Paul. Over the years, uh, I've observed a lot of really precious friendships in a church family. Uh, people who have seen others through cancer, grief, divorce, job loss, betrayal, mistakes, and stood side by side and suffer with one another. You see, friendships are particularly close. God has a plan for friendship that goes way, way deeper than any other friendship for one key reason. Because when two people are both living under the supremacy of Jesus Christ, there is an incredible, close, common way of seeing that everything is eternal. Everything matters. Because it matters in some way to Christ. If I'm traveling in some other state, happen to see somebody with Packer gear, I can't stop myself. I have a conversation, you know. We have something, this, this one little casual commonality. We root for, root for the same team. But what if you have two people who are both radically committed to Jesus Christ, that he saved us, he loved us, he's given us strength in hard times, we can pray in our desperation, and, and somehow we, we meet them, and in some special way at a, in an adult Bible fellowship or a Bible study or a work project, or we begin to share and we begin to meet and we begin to pray for each other. And there is this, this, this commonality that as we share spiritual struggles, we trust Jesus together. One suffers, the other suffers. And that is the compassionate friend that, that God is seeking for you and for you to be to somebody else. He's that man. Aristarchus. And next is Mark. Now, he's probably a better known name uh, to New Testament readers. He's called Mark or John or John Mark in the book of Acts. Mark is a failure who flourished. A failure who later flourished. It says in, in this verse that he is the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him, and if he comes to you, welcome him. So he's, he's related to Barnabas, who's known earlier from the, from the story. Uh, Barnabas was the guy who mentored Paul when Paul was a new Christian back in Acts uh, 11. 
And uh, so Paul and Barnabas are, are friends and co-workers. They are in the church of Antioch. When they're about to be sent out on the first missionary journey, the Holy Spirit sends them out and the, 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 the church sends them out. And that's where Mark enters the story because they don't go alone. Barnabas says, how about taking my young cousin Mark along? Acts uh, 13, 5. Well, who's Mark? We know from Acts 12, verse 12, that uh, Mark is from Jerusalem. In fact, if you know the story of of, uh, Acts chapter 12, it's the story where uh, Peter is in prison for preaching Christ, and there's a prayer meeting going on at Mark's mother's house. So it's his, his, his house, you could say. And they're praying in the middle of the night, and then the angel gets Peter out of prison in answer to their prayer and shows up, and someone tells them, hey, Peter's here. Can't be. It must be his angel. It's one of those, you pray, but you don't even expect an answer kind of a thing. But God answered, and that all happened at Mark's mother's house in Jerusalem. So Mark was uh, around Jerusalem in the time of Jesus and would know of him and the beginnings of the church. And Mark seems to be a close friend with Peter, who may have been the one to... Uh, lead him to faith in Christ and disciple him because at the end of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 13, Peter calls Mark his son in the faith. So how does Mark figure into the story here? Mark on the first journey, he's from Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 12, Barnabas says, Barnabas brings Mark from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and that's that's the happening church where they're sending out missionaries, says, why don't you come and work here? Because he knew of Mark's commitment to Christ. And so sure enough, they head out on this journey. Mark goes with them, several different stops, get to be a part of planting churches. But then it simply says, he came as a helper, but a few verses later it says, John left them to return to Jerusalem. He left them. Doesn't say why, doesn't say whether it was a big deal. And we see the rest of the journey then that uh, Paul and Barnabas go on and start churches other places, eventually getting back to Antioch and reporting what God has all done. And a little while later, uh, Paul says, you know, we should really go back and visit those churches. Barnabas says, great idea, let's take Mark along. (laughs) And this is the conversation that followed. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, on the second journey, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued on with them in the work. You know, he went home to mom. I don't want to use him anymore. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, anyhow, and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, and they go over land and go a different So it was a sharp disagreement. Now, it doesn't say it was a bitter disagreement, but it was very real. And graciously, God has many times used people on two sides of a a disagreement in the body of Christ and used them both. I've known of, uh, or perhaps you have two churches that have split, and and sometimes I'm just amazed at the grace of God that they part ways over some disagreement, and God blesses and uses that church, and God blesses and uses that church. It's amazing. I'm I'm grateful it hasn't uh, happened here, but uh, we have to always be aware of the fact that disagreement is real. This is not the end of of the story, because Mark occurs in this verse. This is 12, 13 years later. And what does Paul say about Mark? 
Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, sends you his greetings. You've received instructions about him. And if he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him where? In Colossae. Paul has never been to Colossae, but he says, Mark might be coming, and I've sent instructions about him, but be sure to welcome him. Very clearly, Mark has a, I mean, Paul has a different view of Mark by now. He is trusted, he is established, he is coming, it seems, in a spiritual leadership capacity to Colossae. Welcome him. Something has changed. In fact, if you fast forward another six, seven years, and Paul is in prison the final time, we find that Paul says, I want to make sure, I want to see Timothy. And so he writes to Timothy and says, uh, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in ministry. So Timothy, I really want to see you, but you know who else I want to see? I want to see Mark. So bring him along. So we don't know where Mark was, but somewhere along that journey, uh, they picked up Mark. Timothy picked up Mark so he could go and help Paul in those final uh, probably months of ministry. What made the difference in Mark? What made the difference in Mark, coming from failure to flourishing, is Jesus and Barnabas. Jesus and Barnabas. First Barnabas. So Barnabas takes him on this trip, rewinding again. We don't know anything about that trip, except we know that Barnabas had the patience to work with a guy who had gone through failure. See, Barnabas had been the one to help Paul in those early days, too, when he was a new Christian. And Barnabas was this encouraging kind of a guy. What else do we know about Mark? What else did he do that has benefited us? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? Mark wrote the, the second in the order of our Bibles, but probably the first to be written record of the life of Jesus Christ. Probably writing with information from his friend and mentor, Peter. It's often thought that, Peter, that the Gospel of Mark is really based on the first-hand account of, of Peter, who was an eyewitness of these things, and then Mark, who was not one of the 12 disciples, but Mark, who was still present in Jerusalem, wrote it down. Have you ever given up on someone spiritually? Yeah, we have, haven't we? You ever, you ever think of certain people and a certain event stands out, they failed. They blew it. And it becomes kind of like a label in our mind. That's who we think of them as. It could be 12, 13 years ago. And we still got them stuck in that position. Is that fair? No, not if we believe in, in God working in his people as we bring ourselves under the supremacy of Christ. We grow. If you've grown, can we expect that God would be faithful to work in others as well. Paul was guilty of, of that kind of labeling at first, but he had the humility to realize, oh, no, Mark has matured. We need people like Barnabas. But even more important, what else do we know about Mark? Where was his focus? The gospel that he wrote, what was it about? It's all about Jesus. He was so completely consumed by the reality of who Jesus is that he wrote it all down. That's what changed Mark. You need a Barnabas, 
But it's submitting to the supremacy of who Jesus is that transforms us. Often thought to be the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark is Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's Mark, who in his earlier Christian days failed to serve, transformed by Jesus, who did not fail to serve even though he was the creator of the universe and it changed his life. Whatever failures are in your past, God is at work. Whatever failures are in the past of someone you know, pray and trust God to work. One more, justice. Verse 11, Jesus, who is called justice, also sends his greetings. Jesus was a fairly common name, and sometimes uh, with that name you would be referred to by the Roman nickname, Justice. So what do we know about this guy? His name was Justice. That's it. He was in Rome, if he's a part of those who are comforting Paul. So, okay, if he's in Rome, he maybe came to faith in Christ in Rome. He's Jewish, and so he now knows Jesus is his Messiah. He, we assume, comforted by serving, encouraged by serving Paul. So did he bring him food? Did he launder his clothes? We don't know. Maybe he was a well-known teacher in Rome for all we know, but we don't know because some of God's choice servants are virtually unknown. We will be surprised who all hears, well done, good and faithful servant. Because there'll be people many times that we don't even know. Around the room here, there are people that, uh, and where you are sitting as well, that you may know better or, or not so much as part of the church. I get to be up front. But all of us are going to die. And we're all going to, at some point, be forgotten here. And uh, so your name or my name might be on something, you know, maybe some congregational meeting minutes. You made a motion. And so 40 years from now, maybe up in that attic, there's a box of meeting minutes. Hey, your name's there. Or your grandchildren are cleaning out your attic and, and they're throwing stuff away and they find that you were on an usher or a welcome center list. Good for grandpa. But other than that, we're going to be forgotten. Are you okay with just being justice? Because you are so committed to who he is instead of to who you are. How well you're known here really doesn't matter. What does matter is that you are known in heaven. And what will matter most will be to hear, well done, good faithful servant. We've met five of them. What is it about the supremacy of Jesus Christ that motivates you in your service? Is it that he created all things, all that beauty? He must be good, even if something crummy is going on in my life, but he must be good. Is it that he is in supreme control of the chaos around the globe, around America, 
and whatever's going on in your life. Is that what's motivating you? These are good things. Is what motivates you the fact that he has forgiven your sin? And inch by inch is, is erasing the shame you felt. Is it his supremacy in choosing to gift you and give you opportunities of service that you don't deserve? What is the, the supremacy of Christ doing in your life? How is it driving you? And so then we should ask some very important questions. Am I faithfully serving under the supremacy of Christ? First, thinking upward. Have you accepted God's grace for your past? Could be that you're listening or watching today and you've never really understood the grace of God and I would encourage you to think about what we call the good news or the gospel. Uh, last week, if you were to watch the uh, message from last week, we, we see the three circles. The, the issue is, have you accepted God's grace for your past? He died for your sins. Have you put your faith in him? But maybe you're a believer, then you're struggling to accept his grace for your past. Have, your, have you become accustomed to your failures to the point they even could become an excuse to do little or nothing. Kind of convenient. Or have you wrestled with and, and, and grown from your past? Thinking inward, what are your motives for serving Christ? Do pride and recognition fuel what you do? Often the way you can tell is how you react when somebody else gets credit for something you did. What's your motives? Also inward would be, what is my character? What is my character? Um, am, I, am I doing anything that distracts from uh, the supremacy of Christ and God using me? Is, is there some current thing that I feel like God is working on in my life right now? Uh, could I ask a godly friend what it might be as I want to grow in my character so I can be used by God faithfully? And then finally, outwardly, where do I fit? What are my strengths? How has God spiritually gifted me? Where am I needed? What opportunities should I pursue? What ministries should I release? Which way is God directing me? Who could I ask to help confirm where I fit? We are to be transformed by the supremacy of Christ. Is that, is that happening? Because like these five names... God knows our name, and we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves to you and must submit ourselves over, over, and over. You know our own heart, our own sinful tendencies. You know our weaknesses, and yet in your grace, you have saved us. You have been patient with us. You are currently at work in us, and you are, are, are by your Spirit, transforming us to be used by you and to become faithful. Thank you for these examples of those who have faithfully served you in the past. And may you, who know our name, consider us faithful in Jesus' name.